0: This week, TCC note holders file competing PG&E plan. TPG asserts feral gas default. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelting, reporter for Reorg in New York.
0: And I'm legal analyst Alex Brosman. Later this episode, the REORG First Day Team runs through 3rd quarter Chapter 11 filings. It's Sunday, October 20th.
1: On Thursday, the Official Committee of Tort Claimants and the Ad Hoc Committee of Senior Unsecured Noteholders filed their competing plan of reorganization for the PG&E debtors in accordance with Judge Dennis Montali's order terminating the debtors' exclusive plan filing period. The plan is consistent with the TCC and Ad Hoc Committee's October 4th Second Amended Term Sheet and September 25th Amended Term Sheet and provides for the payment of post-petition interest at applicable contract rates and for payment of all make whole premiums. The plan also includes provisions that would bar the reorganized debtors from passing planned contributions on to customers through increased rates, selling operating assets for five years, or seeking a return of equity exceeding 10.25% for three years. The TCC and noteholder committee did not file a disclosure statement in line with Judge Montali's prior decision that the plan and disclosure statements would proceed on separate parallel tracks and that the debtors need only file a DS quote preview. On Wednesday, several objections were filed to the pg and debtors motion for authority to enter into a restructuring support agreement with the ad hoc group of subrogation claim holders and approval of their insurance subrogation claim settlement. The objections were filed by groups including the Official Unsecured Creditors Committee, the TCC, and the Ad Hoc Noteholder Group. According to the UCC, the, quote, far-reaching subrogation claim settlement, quote, would not allow $11 billion in subrogation claims, but would also irrevocably obligate the debtors to pay those claims in full in cash with no fiduciary out. While the TCC contended that the settlement is, quote, not fair and equitable as a matter of federal bankruptcy law or California law. Also, on Wednesday, Gibson Dunn, as counsel to a group of holders of PG&E trade claims, filed a Rule 2019 statement disclosing holdings of the Ad Hoc Trade Committee as of October 16th, reporting an aggregate $237.3 million in trade claims. Group members include White Box Advisors, Olympus Peak Asset Management, Marble Ridge Capital, and Citigroup's Distressed Debt Trading Desk. In addition to trade claim holdings, the group members hold various addition claims and interests which are, quote, not being represented by the ad hoc trade committee, according to the filing.
0: On Tuesday, Ferrell Gas Partners disclosed that TPG Specialty Lending Inc as administrative and collateral agent under Feral Gas' senior secured credit facility, had delivered a notice of default to the company on September 25th for failing to deliver, quote, certain quarterly unaudited consolidated financial information of the operating partnership and its subsidiaries to TPG. The company made the surprise disclosure as it reported financial results for the fourth quarter fiscal 2019, which included a revenue decrease of 19.7% year over year, as well as adjusted EBITDA of $4 million, down from $8 million in the prior year. In its 10K, FarrowGas said that it delivered all required financial information and the related compliance certificate to TPG on September 25th, one day after the deadline. The 10K further stated that although Feral Feral Gas believes, quote, such delivery cured the event of default and that, quote, no event of default presently exists, TPG has taken the view that the default, quote, cannot be cured by delivery of the required information after the deadline instead of requiring a waiver under the terms of the financial agreement. On Wednesday, REARG reported that market sources were pointing to a make-hole as one possible reason why TPG was holding a hard line on the reporting covenant breach it alleged. REARG covenants noted that the TPG reporting covenant was atypical, in that for the fourth quarter of each fiscal year, it requires not only annual financial statements to be delivered within 100 days of the fiscal year end, but also quarterly financials to be delivered within 55 days of the fiscal year end, rather than requiring quarterly financials to be delivered with the annual financials.
1: At a hearing on Tuesday, Johnson & Johnson in the state of Oklahoma sparred in front of Judge Tad Balkman over the latter's landmark ruling, ordering the defendants to pay $572.1 million in the state's public nuisance lawsuit. The parties disagreed about the form of final order to be entered by the court. Contentious debate surrounded whether the judgment should be reduced to correct a $107 million calculation error whether the judgment should be reduced to provide defendants with a $355 million, quote, credit for the state's settlement with Purdue and TAVA for that aggregate amount, and whether Oklahoma may request funds from the court in the future beyond, quote, year one of the abatement plan on which the original $572.1 million figure was based. Counsel for the state argued that a credit should not be provided to Johnson & Johnson, stating that the court's order, quote, doesn't mention settlement credits. And further, in order for settlement credit to be given, quote, you have to have another defendant who can be found liable in tort for the same injury, which is not the case here. O'Melveny and Myers, as counsel for the Johnson & Johnson defendants, responded that not providing a credit would violate, quote, principles of double recovery, arguing that the court's own ruling stated that Johnson & Johnson at times acted in concert with the settling defendants, Teva and Purdue. On the question of future abatement relief, the state argued that such requests would be appropriate, given the court is required to, quote, fully abate the nuisance, which three expert witnesses testified would take, quote, at least 20 years. Counsel for the defendants argued that requesting such future relief was merely an attempt to, quote, rewrite what the court did in its original ruling which authorized payment of abatement costs for just one year. At the end of the hearing, Judge Balkman acknowledged that his August judgment included a $107 million, quote, calculation error as to one category of abatement costs and that the figure should have been $107,683. Judge Balkman took the other disputed matters under advisement and indicated that he would address them in a, quote, forthcoming ruling. The ruling will also correct the $107 million error, he said.
0: On Tuesday, I traveled to Washington, D.C. to watch the U.S. Supreme Court hear oral arguments in the consolidated appeals taking aim at the legality of the PROMISA Oversight Board and the validity and effects of its acts during its tenure, arising in the context of challenges to a decision issued by the First Circuit for the Court of Appeals interpreting the, the appointments clause of the United States Constitution. The justices posed a substantial number of questions during the 80-minute session, with Associate Justices Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, and Brett Kavanaugh being the most active speakers. The topics addressed at oral argument included the distinction between officers, such as the U.S. Attorney for Puerto Rico and the Promisa Oversight Board, any parallels between officials in Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, The Oversight Board acting on behalf of Puerto Rico for the Commonwealth's interests, despite not being elected by the Puerto Rico people, the scope of the powers delegated to the Oversight Board, particularly in instances where the Commonwealth Governor does not have such authority, and the appropriate test for determining whether the Oversight Board is acting under federal authority or local authority. As is the usual case, the Supreme Court did not provide any indication as to the timing of his ruling. During a congressional hearing on Thursday, top U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development officials told members of a U.S. House Appropriations Subcommittee that they would, quote, soon publish a mitigation notice starting the process for Puerto Rico to access about $8.3 billion in additional disaster relief funding, calling the issue a, quote, top priority but declining to provide a target date. The officials also said that They expect to name, quote, in the next month or two, the federal financial monitor that HUD announced in August would be appointed to address alleged corruption, fiscal irregularities, and mismanagement concerns in Puerto Rico. The House Appropriation Committee's Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development and Related Agencies Subcommittee's hearing focused on HUD's failure to publish the mitigation notice for Puerto Rico despite being required to do so by a September 4th deadline established through the enactment of the Additional Supplemental Appropriations for Disaster Relief Act of 2019. Quote, HUD did fail to comply with the law. That much nobody disputes, said U.S. Representative David Price, the subcommittee chairman. During the hearing, Price and other committee members seized on on comments made by Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney during a press conference acknowledging that President Donald Trump opposed providing disaster aid to Puerto Rico this year because of concerns over corruption. Also on Thursday, AFAF posted certain mediation-related cleansing documents to Emma, the documents, which were prepared by the permisa Oversight Board, include a presentation on Commonwealth Fiscal Plan Risks dated September 17 and a separate summary of Cash Restriction Analysis, or CRA, dated October 2. The CRA estimates unrestricted cash of $6.9 billion across all public corporations and plan of adjustment entities. According to the CRA, unrestricted cash, quote, represents potential value available to Commonwealth Title III creditors. The filing also indicates that Puerto Rico is facing several challenges, including recent turnover in leadership, notably with the governorship, ongoing federal scrutiny, and lingering aftermath from Hurricane Maria, including infrastructure and a shortage of physicians and nurses. As a result of these challenges, the filing stated... Areas of uncertainty are created that put the fiscal plan projections at risk. The filing identifies three categories. One, macroeconomic and revenue projections. Two, implementation of structural reforms. And three, implementation of fiscal measures.
1: Other top stories last week were Lynn Tilton owned Dura Automotive Files Chapter 11 in Middle District of Tennessee. Tilton to fund $77 million dip, seek to purchase company in 363 sale. McDermott's credit agreement may allow priming secured debt with simple majority vote, out-of-court deal, or potential in-court restructuring complicated by significant LC exposure. Highland Capital Management LP Chapter 11 filing precipitated by $189 million arbitration award stemming from Crusader Fund Widenown. And as always, here's Jim Holloway with The Week Ahead.
2: Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the most interesting half hour in the universe of ones and zeros that is the digitally recorded podcast. It looks like a hectic week, mainly for the legal community. Monday, October 21st, opening arguments in the opioids MDL case here in Ohio, continued disclosure statement and confirmation hearing in ECOBAT, and a status conference in Zohar, which is, of course, the Lynn Tilton entity named after a book of the Kabbalah, which apparently the WeWork executive team in happier time studied in the C-Suite. There's some six degrees of separation for y'all. And in PG&E, there's a wildfire claim status conference. Tuesday, October 22nd, omnibus hearings. Ones for aceto Alta Mesa, and South Cross. Wednesday, October 23rd, even more omnibus hearings. Looks like Sears, New Katai, Windstream, Payless, Barneys, Verity, Sanchez, and PHI. And in PG&E, there is a planned status conference. Thursday, October 23rd, auction in the aforesaid Barneys, confirmation hearings for Stearns and Deluxe. Stand back, folks. The California Public Utilities Commission is having a voting meeting, and one assumes that their conference room will not be subject to the blackouts that that PG&E has promised the state for the next decade. And Friday, and it's a hectic Friday, there's an auction in Global Cloud and other omnibus in Alta Mesa, Confirmation hearing in Black Hawk, a utilities motion hearing in EP Energy, and a final settlement approvement hearing in Sun Edison, and that is all back to you folks in New York.
1: Thanks, Jim. Now here's the First Day team on third quarter Chapter Eleven filings.
3: I'm talking today with the team at Reorg First Day, Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland. Reorg First Day monitors Chapter Eleven filings across the country with more than ten million dollars in liabilities and tracks trends in filings through the First Day database. Jessica and Ian are going to give us a bird's eye view today of Chapter 11 filing activity in the third quarter of 2019. To start us off, Jessica, can you tell us about the level of Chapter 11 filing activity recently? Sure, Karen. Uh, the first
4: quarter was the busiest quarter in REORG first-day history, as well as the fifth consecutive quarter to post an increase in Chapter 11 filings. Every month of the quarter was a record-setting month, as each month included more Chapter 11 filings than each respective month in the previous three years. For the year-to-date period, these record-setting months include February, July, August, and September. September was particularly busy with 44 new Chapter 11 cases in 27 days, making it 2019's busiest busiest month to date and also the busiest month for Chapter 11 activity going all the way back to May 2016. As of the end of September, 2019 was just 19 cases shy of eclipsing the case total for all of 2018. This year has also been the fastest to reach 300 cases in first-day history. Um, For larger Chapter 11s or cases with more than $100 in liabilities, the third quarter was up 78% above Q3 2018 and 190% over Q3 2017 and 68% above 2016.
3: And is summertime usually a busy or slow time for Chapter 11 filings?
4: Well, if we narrow the timeline to summer 2019, we had a 54% spike in Chapter 11 filings from summer 2018. There had been a summer softening in Chapter 11 filings in 2016, 2017, and 2018, but this past summer I had a 23% spike in filings since the spring.
3: Wow. So which sectors saw the biggest increases this past quarter?
5: The biggest increases from the second quarter to the third quarter were the consumer discretionary sector, which was up 47%, consumer staples, which was up 80%, energy up 29%, and industrials up 133%.
3: And for a little bit of comparison with last year, uh, by the end of the quarter, which sectors were up the most for the year compared to last year?
5: Most sectors are up relative to last year. As of September 30, communication services was up 20%, consumer discretionary was up 26%, energy was up 120%, financials was up 78%, healthcare was up 52%, industrials was up 52% as well, materials was up 18%, and real estate was up 8%. The only sector that posted a decrease in filing frequency from the last year was Information Technology, which recorded 15 cases in the first three quarters of 2018, and nine over the same period this year. Consumer Staples filings matched their 2018 numbers exactly. Previously, 2018 was the busiest year for healthcare cases since the start of reorg first day coverage. But with the filings of non-invasive medical technologies and MMMT Corporation at the end of September, the 2019 Chapter 11 filing count for healthcare moved ahead of 2018's whole year total.
3: And Ian, what types of healthcare cases have generally filed?
5: Tracking from the start of the year, facilities have taken the largest share of healthcare filings, followed by pharmaceuticals and biotechnology companies with suppliers and support services companies as the lowest share. Hospitals make up approximately half of 2019's healthcare filings. 46% of these hospitals are skilled nursing and long-term care facilities. One third are general acute care hospitals and 21% are other medical practices and treatment centers. Pharmaceuticals and biotechnology companies make up about 30% of all healthcare filings. The third quarter had six hospital filings in total, half of which were skilled nursing facilities. In terms of where these companies filed, many have been Texas-based. Texas makes less than 9% of the country's population, but approximately 20% of US healthcare filings. Another state with a much higher share of healthcare Chapter 11's than its share of U.S. population is Tennessee, which makes up 2% of the country's population and about 5% of healthcare Chapter 11's.
3: You mentioned that the biotechnology and pharmaceutical space continued to have a large presence in the third quarter. What were some of the biggest cases? That's right. There were a lot of pharmaceutical companies that have
4: been filing this whole year, as these companies had more Chapter 11 filings in the first six months of 2019 than in all of the prior three years combined. This quarter, this trend continued with the largest and, of course, most highly publicized case of Purdue Pharma. The opioid maker filed last month in the midst of opioid litigation, which is the main focus of the case. Um, other third quarter filings came from Siena Biopharmaceuticals, which focuses on dermatology and aesthetics, Ubiome, which provides in-home testing kits for DNA analysis, and Novasom, which makes a wireless sleep data device. Novasom blamed a failure to raise capital. Sienna blamed various things for its financial trouble, one of which was large contingent payments under a 2016 share purchase agreement. Ubiome was also facing contingent payments that hindered a pre-petition sale based on investigations by certain federal and state agencies. All of three of these companies filed seeking to pursue a sale. Also filing to run a sale process was True Health Group, which provides lab management and diagnostic services.
3: And continuing on that vein, Jessica, what was the level of debt for these healthcare care cases?
4: In general since June 2015 the healthcare sector has accounted for roughly 25 billion in aggregate liabilities by comparison the oil and gas industry has accumulated more than 138 billion in chapter 11 liabilities over the same time period and retail debt is closer to 50 billion
3: so speaking of retail debt have a lot of retail chains filed recently
5: it was definitely a busy quarter for retail chains, including household names Forever 21, Avenue Stores, and Barneys. The quarter also had filings from Charming Charlie, Agassi, and Bonworth. Agassi is 2019's fourth, chapter, fourth retail industry, Chapter 22, after Jimbery and Payless repeated their Quarter 2 2017 filings in the first quarter of 2019, and Charming Charlie repeated its December 2017 filing in July. Agassi's Chapter 22 is the quickest of the four, filing its second case just one year and seven months after the first case. The luxury candy market also took a hit this quarter with the Sugarfina and Lolly and Pops filings. Retailers identifying themselves as upscale, luxury, high-end, or premium are on the rise in general, both in frequency and as a percentage of all retail filings, which have increased every year since 2016. Falling into this category would be movie theater company IPIC, which provides a dining experience along with the movie. Other retailer filers include Gamerbox company Loot Crate, mattress company Latex Foam International, and luxury watch distributor New Dover. Fashion retailers have made up the largest portion of retail cases for the year to date, followed by candy stores, general merchandise purveyors, furniture stores, and others.
3: And Ian, what did the retailers point to as reasons for the filings?
5: The familiar mall-based retailer struggles continued, including leasing issues along with complaints about consumers shifting to e-shopping. In addition, Loot Crate itself an e-commerce seller of subscription boxes, blamed the Wayfair decision requiring retailers that sell more than $500,000 in goods for delivery in California to collect California sales use taxes. Mattress manufacturer Latex Foam also pointed to a shift in the mattress industry towards disruptive lower-priced mattresses.
3: What about restaurant filings?
5: Restaurant filers from the 3rd quarter included Perkins and Marie Calendars, Dream Big, which is McDonald's, which is a McDonald's franchisee for 8 restaurants in South Carolina, and Restaurants Unlimited, which operates 35 different res- or 35 restaurants across 18 brands, including Checkers. The McDonald's franchisee blamed the filing in part on a loss of its entire leadership team shortly after taking over the restaurants.
3: So I know that the First Day team has also covered a number of very large cases. How did cases over $1 billion fare over the third quarter?
5: The third quarter had the same number of Chapter 11 cases with over $1 billion liabilities as the first two quarters combined, Um, both of which, so it was 11 in the first two quarters combined and 11 in the third quarter. Billion-dollar bankruptcies for the first quarters were led by energy, which accounted for four of the eleven, followed by consumer discretionary with three cases. Energy accounted for more than half of the third quarter's billion-dollar filings, with six cases during the period. The energy sector has dominated 2019's billion-dollar bankruptcies, much like 2016. It's also the busiest sector for cases with over 100 million in liabilities, followed by the healthcare sector. For cases with over 10 million in liabilities, however, the consumer discretionary sector is on top.
3: So going back to Jessica, uh, why don't we dive a little bit deeper into the different sectors? What did you observe in the consumer staples cases? There were a bunch of food related companies that filed.
4: Uh, one of those was Norpac Foods, um, which is one of the biggest, and it claims it's the largest independent processor of organic and regular frozen vegetables and fruit in the Pacific Northwest. The company filed with $125 million of secured debt and a stocking horse agreement with the Oregon Potato Company for about $150 million. There are also a couple of pharmacy chains that filed, like Fred's and Doherty's. Fred's operates a chain of discount general merchandise stores with more than 550 locations and they filed to wind down their uh, operations and also sell their pharmacy assets. Doherty is another pharmacy operator with multiple locations in Texas and Oklahoma also filed to sell its assets.
3: And uh, what were the reasons for these bankruptcies? They really varied. Norpac's former CEO
4: had noted that the company did not react fast enough to the organic movement, saying that the agricultural community largely thought it was a fad. Another filer this quarter was the owner of the Gabriel's Liquor Store chain, which operates in San Antonio. And they blamed an influx of big box retailers for their filing. Then there was For Him Food Group, which does business as uh, Cosmos Creations, which makes snack foods, and they blamed big box stores for their financial troubles, but that was due to the loss of its Sam's Club and Costco accounts. Rancher's Legacy Meat Company was another one, and it's a meat processing and distribution business, and they blamed what they called a recent downturn in the rendering business. And then finally, there was an upstate New York farm brewery called Empire Farmstead Brewery. And they filed because of delays and cost overruns during the development of the brewery, along with a wild yeast infection causing the company to stop all of its bottled beer distribution. For the pharmacies, um, Doherty's blamed decreased prescriptions and increased competition from national pharmacy chain's While Fred's, which has a larger business model beyond just pharmacies, went through a few unsuccessful operational initiatives to stave off the filing, including cost cuts and trying to grow their closeouts um, and also their private brand offerings. So
3: Ian, you mentioned that uh, the energy sector had a lot of filings this quarter. Can you tell us more about some of those cases?
5: Absolutely. There were 22 energy cases this quarter, which was the most per quarter since the second quarter of 2016. For the oil and gas industry, there was approximately 12 billion in aggregate liabilities for the quarter, compared to about 8.3 billion for the first two quarters combined. There were five energy cases reporting over 1 billion in liabilities during the third quarter: Sheridan Holding Company, Alta Mesa Resources, Sanchez Energy, Helcon Resources, and Philadelphia Energy Solutions in September. Both Halicon and Philadelphia Energy Solutions were chapter 22s with Halcon's filing or prior filing in July 2016 and Philadelphia's in January of last year. Despite an increase in coal companies filing in the first half of the year, there were only two this quarter, Blackhawk Mining and Black Jewel, both of which filed in July.
3: And what did the companies cite as reasons for their chapter 11 cases?
5: They've generally cited an environment of declining and volatile commodity prices, which have been described as wildly fluctuating. Oil and gas companies have also faced issues stemming from acquisitions made in higher com- in a higher commodity price environment.
3: And uh, switching over to the financial sector, which also had a few, few filings over this past quarter, uh, can you get into some of those cases? Uh, sure.
4: A real estate investment trust rate was a highly tracked story this quarter. The company traced its financial problems back to the 2008 financial crisis after which it racked up about 100 not 100 sorry it was 1.5 billion in losses the company had provided debt financing options to owners of commercial real estate until 2018 um, rate entered into an equity and asset purchase agreement with an entity owned by funds managed by affiliates of fortress for $174.4 million subject to an ongoing proposed um, auction process, which has since been approved. The bid procedures have been approved by the court. Um, there was also Stearns Holding, which is a residential mortgage loan originator. They filed in July, and that was the biggest financial sector case since another mortgage
3: originator and servicer DiTech, had filed in February. How about transportation and logistics cases? What were the biggest trends that you observed there?
2: We
5: found that there were more industrials cases in the third quarter than the first and second quarters combined. This was driven by freight, trucking and logistics and construction and engineering companies, both of which are way up from last year.
3: Uh, I also know that the first day team tracks chapter 22s or second chapter 11 filings by the same company. Uh, What did you see there uh, this quarter?
5: That's right, Um, in one week, in August alone, there were four Chapter 22s. These cases were from oil and gas producer Halcon, which filed about three years after its Chapter 11 filing. Barney's, whose August filing came more than a decade after its 1996 bankruptcy. Agassi, the fourth retail chain, Chapter 22 this year. And Latex Foam International, which does business as Telele Global, whose prior case was in 2014. Other Chapter 22s include MaxCom USA Telecom, oil refining complex operator Philadelphia Energy Solutions, whose second filing came just 18 months after its prior case in January 2018. Like retail chains, Energy also had a total of four Chapter 22s this year.
3: Thank you so much, Jessica and Ian, for providing us with an overview of Chapter 11 filing activity in the third quarter of 2019. And I know that the First Day team will be back with us at the end of the year with their annual review. Looking forward to that conversation and handing it back to you, Connor.
1: Thanks, Karen. And thank you, listener, for listening to another Reorg podcast. As always, find all of them on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelding.